We are in, uh, we're in our fourth week, and again, I'm not sure how many weeks we're going nowhere in a hurry, so it doesn't matter. We've got plenty of time. The pace will pick up after today, but it's our fourth week looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and we begin uh, with the Beatitudes. We have taken some time, and uh, in the first three weeks, have worked our way through the first, uh, uh, what, nine verses or so? And uh, Paul, or Paul, I am... Jesus is uh, delivering to us uh, what is arguably the, the greatest sermon ever preached. He's talking to us not so much about how to become a Christian, although clearly that's in there, but he's saying, now as a Christian, this is how I'll live. My life is distinctive. My life is different. You saw it. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's where it all begins. When we acknowledge that we're unable to do anything for ourselves spiritually. Blessed are those who mourn. The idea there is, I'm broken over my sin. Blessed are those who are gentle. It's strength under control. Now in my life, as I begin to, to grow, if I'm truly a Christian, if I've been converted, I'll begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness. There'll be a deep desire to know God, to know His Word, to know what's right. Mercy. Now uh, this love that I say I have now begins to manifest itself externally. Blessed are the pure in heart. That means the idea of, of pure in the sense that it's without hypocrisy. It's true. It's genuine. It loves what's good and hates what's evil. Blessed are the peacemakers. Those are the people who have made peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. They have the peace of God. Consequently, because they have this peace with God, they begin to uh, be his ambassadors through the world to take the message of peace. Peace through Christ and Christ alone. Today we pick up in verse 10. And uh, I would have to admit that if I was somebody who was here for the first time and I heard this, I'd say these are definitely weird people. Um, because it just sounds so strange. Let's read. We'll, read, uh, we'll get down to, uh, through verse 16, I think, today if we can. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad. That's what I mean. Doesn't that sound weird? In the midst of that persecution, rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt becomes tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under a, a bushel basket. But on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good works and glorify your fathers in heaven. He begins, here's what he says. Blessed, this is now the end of the Beatitudes. They all begin with that word blessed. It means happy in a divine sense, a joyous sense, not some superficial, circumstantial way. Blessed are those who are persecuted. 
One of the introductions to one of the books said this, of all the Beatitudes, this last one seems the most contrary to human thinking and experience. The world does not associate happiness with humility or mourning over sin or gentleness or righteousness or mercy or purity of heart or peacemaking or holiness. But even less, the world does not associate happiness with persecution. Jesus is very clear. He says in this life there is going to be this persecution. This will come. When Paul writes to uh, his protege, uh, Timothy, he talks at length about just life issues. But in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, he says this, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the gospel of our Lord or of me, your prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. 2 Timothy 2.3, he said, Suffer hardship with me. It's so clear, clearly stated, 2 Timothy 3.12, And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Here's what we're saying. That persecution is an inevitable mark of the Christian faith. And the reason is simple. We've talked about it. Because you now assume a role in your life that runs counterculture. Remember, that's what we said as we read from John Stott, as we were uh, opening our study in the Sermon on the Mount, that the Christian culture is counterculture. That what the world values, oftentimes, and what Christ tells us to value are two different things. And even if both have some value, the priority or emphasis push on East One is very, very different. What I want to get at is, in your mind is, don't be surprised by this idea of suffering. The night before he died, Jesus spoke to his disciples. Here's what he says, John 15, 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Because you're not of this world, I chose you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. Remember what the word said, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. This is an inevitable part of the Christian life. One author writes this, Righteousness is confrontational. Even where it's not preached in so many words, it confronts wickedness by its very contrast. Let me read it again. Righteousness is confrontational. And even where it's not preached in so many words, it confronts wickedness by its very contrast. Some of you have had this experience. Uh, as a Christian, uh, you were converted to Christianity in your adult life. Uh, you had formed in your life a lot of relationships, a lot of habits, a lot of places that you went, a lot of guys or gals that you hung with. All of a sudden, that value system that you have changes. You don't sit one, down one day and say, you know what, I'm going to stop doing this and stop doing this and stop doing this. But inevitably, as you draw closer to Him and you grow more and more in Him, your life begins to change. As your life begins to change, some of your friends have come to you and said, there's something different about you, I don't like it anymore. Or they've even maybe just come to you out of the clear blue, and you've noticed that they've pulling away, and you say, what, what, what's going on here? And they say, listen, I don't need you preaching at me all the time. 
and you stop and you do an inventory and you realize you never even said anything. And you go back and you talk to your spouse or you talk to your friends and you say, what did we do? Did you say something? No. Did you? No. Is there something we've done? And the answer is no. It isn't anything you've done. It's who you are. Your very presence is an affront to them. Now listen closely to me. It's not you that they hate. It's not you that they don't like. They like you. They enjoy you. They used to hang out with you, go to movies with you, ball games with you, play golf with you. They like you. And this should be comforting. It's the Jesus in you that they don't like. You don't even have to say anything. Your righteousness, your very presence, all of a sudden, they start calling you a preacher. All of a sudden, you're the, you're the freak. Yeah? All of a sudden, you're the one that's the Christian guru. And when you stop, what it is, is nothing more than Christ beginning to live in you. Blessed are you when they persecute you. Now, there's no way to get around this. When we think of persecution, what we're thinking of first and foremost, I think, at least I am, when I think about it, is we're thinking about physical persecution. Let me give you a website. It's a website that you ought to uh, frequent, I think. It's persecutedchurch.org. Persecutedchurch.org. Uh, there are uh, literally tons of information about the persecuted church. Church right now, Christian church, is persecuted in over 60 countries in the world. Here's one sentence from the website. Modern day persecution is well documented despite some reports to the contrary. In fact, it's estimated that more Christians were martyred in the 20th century than in the prior 1900 years combined. We can talk about openness around the world, but when you uh, begin to go onto that website and you click Afghanistan or Sudan or China, interesting, that came up in the, uh, in the press conference with the Premier of China. I don't know if you've heard that yet. He was asked twice yesterday about the persecution of uh, Christians in China, and he refused to answer. Finally, the third time, he's not probably accustomed to this uh, press. And uh, finally, the third time, and he said, well, these people are jailed not for their religious beliefs, but because they were uh, acting illegally. Well, all of a sudden, this is uh, around the world. And there's discussion. You hear it all the time. Oh, someday it's going to hit over in this country. I, I don't know anything about that. But we ought not be surprised when he says, listen, you'll be persecuted. John Piper writes this, This conviction is rooted in the nature of fallen man and the new nature in Christ. Therefore, it doesn't go out of date. It's still true today. Sooner or later, God-centered Christians will be mistreated for the things he believes or doesn't believe. You get this? He says, blessed are you when you're persecuted. I forgot to tell you at the beginning, not a lot of yucks in this lesson today. I don't think there's one even smile. Okay? The idea here is blessed are you whenever you're persecuted. Now that persecution, again, that persecution uh, could be physical, but he expands on it. He expands on it in, in, in Matthew 10, or Matthew 5, 10. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. Here you go, verse 11. Blessed are you when they cast 
insults at you. The idea uh, there means literally when you are cast into the teeth. When they vilify you, when they insult you, and then he adds to that again in, uh, in verse uh, 11, and they say all kinds of things falsely against you. There's kind of a difference there. There's a difference between the idea of the verbal insult, that's face-to-face, the false accusation is what's done behind your back. Now, in each of these, you've got the word in front of you, look closely. In each of these, he gives us the qualifier. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. When they cast insults and say false things about you on my account. We have a tendency as Christians, for example, to look at our suffering and take all of our suffering and say, oh, that's what he's talking about here, that's persecution. No, that's not. Listen, the godly and the ungodly have problems in their lives. You may look at your life and you may have a a disease that's uh, visiting you. Well, there would be something wrong if you said, well, gee, here's part of the God's suffering for me. Now, God may use it, but that's not what he's talking about here. You may have parents that are sick or children that are sick or jobs that have gone away, hardship, the death of people that you love, those things that are so hard. It doesn't get any harder. It doesn't get any harder, I don't think, than the, than the terminal sickness or the death of, of a child, especially that accidental death where you had no time to prepare. The child's just taken away. But that's not what he's talking about here. Those are hard issues, and we have answers for that. Okay? But that's not what he's talking about. I want you to see this. It's suffering on account of our relationship with Christ. Because you're mine, the world will persecute you. By the way, if you don't want any part of this persecution, it's easy to avoid. John MacArthur writes this. The way to avoid persecution is easy and obvious. Just live like the world. Or at least live and let live. That'll cost you nothing. To mimic the world's standards and never criticize them will cost you nothing. To keep quiet about the gospel, especially the truth that apart from the saving power, men remain in their sins and destined for hell. That'll cost you nothing to go along with the world, to laugh at its jokes, to enjoy its entertainment, to smile when it mocks God, to take His name in vain, to be ashamed to take a stand for Christ will not bring persecution. Listen, if you don't want any of this persecution, that's real easy. Just go with the flow. I always thought that sounded pretty good. I'm just one of those guys that goes with the flow. Here's the problem with that. What if that flow's going somewhere you don't want to go? That's what he's saying here. He's saying if I'm truly a Christian, if I'm truly a follower of Christ, then there will be evidence all around. And in the midst of this, he says something so odd. Verse 12, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Here you go. In the midst of this life that we're talking about, in the midst of starting to live this way, there's only two responses that people can have to you. They're either going to be converted or they're going to persecute. 
All of a sudden, you start to live this life. You present this before people. They're either going to be converted to Christ or persecute you. Now, you may be sitting there and saying, no, 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 there's a third one. There's kind of ambivalence. Well, if they're ambivalent, it's because you aren't living this stuff right enough in front of them. Be glad. Rejoice. Here's why. Two things. Number one, you're at verse 12. It means literally to skip and jump with happy excitement. Yaha, I'm being persecuted. That kind of excitement. It doesn't make any sense. Okay? One of the things we know about the Christian faith, it may be countercultural, but it makes sense. It ultimately makes the only sense. How can I be that? Verse 12, two things. Number one, your reward is great in heaven. What he's, what he's saying here, it's interesting. Christians are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. What he's saying is, no, that's, that's exactly the opposite. Because Christians are heavenly minded, they are earthly good. Because the Christian understands that the reward in heaven is great, their life on earth makes a difference. Paul writes this to the church at Corinth. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, talking about this very issue. Here's what he says, verse 16. Though, therefore, don't lose heart, though the outer man is decaying, the inner man is being renewed day by day, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In a sense, if we're going to use a scale, here's what he said. If I took all the hardship, all the suffering, all the persecution, all the anguish, everything in this world, and I put it on this side of the scale, it would go like this, but now I take that eternal weight of glory and I put it, and it goes like this, but in reality, he says, the scale is silly. This is beyond all comparison. That's why we say to you, and we mean it, remember, no matter how bad it gets, it can only last a lifetime. This isn't home for us. That's why we ought not be so attached to the things of this world. This isn't our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our concern is about heaven. Our concern is about being with our Savior. Our concern is about living there for eternity. Consequently, when I look at the things of this world, they start to fade away. That's what the song says. You can count it all joy. You can rejoice in the midst of persecution, two reasons. Number one, your reward in heaven is great. Number two, you see it? You're in really good company. They did that to the prophets too. Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrews gives us what we call the Hall of Fame of Faith. It's a, it's a powerful chapter. Especially if you want to study it in depth and go back and do the study on each one of these. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Enoch. By faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham. By faith, uh, Sarah. By faith, Joseph. By faith, Moses. By faith, even Rahab. And, 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 and others. They did these extraordinary things. Hebrews 11, um, well, where are we going to go? 33. They performed by faith. They conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mounts of lions, quenched the fire, escaped the edge of the sword. From weakness they were made strong. They became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back 
they're dead by resurrection. Now, lots of times, especially when you watch Channel 21 and you watch some of that Christian TV stuff, they'll go to this chapter and they'll talk about that and they receive back the dead and they're going and they're pumping. They always stop right there. Hebrews 11.35a. They never get to B. Let me read the rest. Others were tortured in not, in not accepting their release in order that they may obtain a better salvation. Others were mocked and scourged, yes, in chains imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves in the ground. That's what they did. What did they do? What did the nation of Israel do with the prophets of old? All of a sudden, they stood up and they said, Thus saith the Lord, you better get this together. You better get this figured out. You're a wicked people. What do they do? Persecute him. What did they do to Jesus? Kill him. What did they do to the apostles? As close as we can tell, all but one, that would be John, all but one were executed. And I don't know if, how much you know about John, but tradition says John was boiled in oil and survived and then was exiled to Patmos. The persecution is a central part of the Christian life. So here's what he says. Rejoice, be happy, be glad. You're going to be persecuted. That's just part of the deal. When Jesus speaks to the church at Smyrna in Revelation, uh, the book of Revelation, in the second chapter, verse 10, here's what he says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. It's an integral part of our life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as they're leading him to the gallows, about to kill him, he said this, This is the end? No. For me, this is the beginning of life. So he says, look it. If you have all these beatitudes in place, if you're poor in spirit, if you're gentle, if you're mourn, if you're persecuted, that ought to motivate you to live. Now verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. You're the salt of the earth. And you are, look at verse 14, you are the light of the world. Let's use each one of those illustrations. When he talks about salt, and you can get, this is one of those things where you can go way too extreme to it. Basically, salt's got two aspects that we look at. One is as a preservative, the other is to add flavor. I, I, I'm not sure that we give flavor to the world. Maybe we do. But I think what the aspect he has in mind here is the preserving aspect. The salt, especially the salt that came from the Dead Sea, was contaminated by gypsum and other minerals. And frequently, it lost its ability to preserve. And you know what they used it for? They would take those paths that were frequently walked, and they'd throw it down to kill the weeds as they'd grow. See what he's saying? If the salt becomes saltless, uh, tasteless, how can it be salty again? It's good for nothing more except to be thrown down and trampled underfoot. That's what they used it for. You and I come into this world, and we bring into this world reason. We bring into this world real flavor. Here you go, verse 14. But also we're the light of the world. I, I hope this isn't a stretch, 
When Jesus was here, he said, I'm the light of the world. John 8, 12, I believe. And then in John 9, 5, he said this, while I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. While I'm here, I'm the light of the world. But now it seems to me, he changes the emphasis here. Here's what he says. You're the light of the world. You're the light. Now, see how he concludes it? When people see you, they praise your Father in heaven. The light that Jesus had was that direct light. He was the light. In a sense, what he's saying is, we now reflect that source of light through our lives. We've talked about it before. Light basically has three functions. We use it as a standard. We use it as a measurement. We use it to energize. Now, I don't want to make this too simple, but my question to you is this. How do you become the light of the world? Let me give you what I think is the answer. Just by living. Just doing it. How do I become the light of the world? I just do it. When John is speaking, throughout his gospel, he's contrasting light and darkness. Here's what he says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting light. John 3.19. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world. Men love their darkness rather than their life for their deeds are evil. Man likes the dark. I was at a stoplight the other day. I looked to my right. There's an adult bookstore. I look at this adult bookstore, and there is, and, it, and, there, and everyone is the same. There's not a window in the joint. You drive by a strip club, go down by a Bourbon Street, not a light in the joint. Men love the dark. Our evils are, are, are dark. That's why you go into a bar. I'm talking now not about some grill where they serve fondue. I mean a bar, a real bar. You don't have any light in there. You don't have any windows in there. It's dark. That's what he says. John 3.20, he continues. For everybody who does evil hates the light, does not come into the light. Why? Lest its deeds be exposed. Here's all the light does. The light and the dark cannot possibly coexist. The minute the light comes into a room, the dark is vanished. The minute the light comes, that's you. The minute the light of Christ comes, the minute the Word comes, the minute the truth comes, darkness is exposed. I was, uh, in my uh, younger days at home, I used to hang out at a place called the Circle Tap. The Great Bar. And uh, I love to go there. I always loved the bar. To me, the bars were great places because it had everything you wanted. It had, it had booze, it had sports, and everybody lying to everybody. The three great things of light. <laughs> I was home a few years ago, and I went up to the circle. And that was always the place. And I went up to the circle tap. And, and they were, they had, the front windows were all covered with, with advertising, so it just blocked out all the light. And then there'd be a little slot where you could put a neon sign in. And I went into the circle one day, and they were stripping. They were moving from a, I'm, I, from a Pabst bar, I know they were that, to something new, I don't know, Bud or Miller Lite. They stripped all the advertising away, all the doors were kicked open, all the lights were on, and there were additional lighting in there because they were cleaning. 
I'd never been into the circle with all the lights on and all the stuff stripped away from the windows. And you could see on the top, you could see uh, the grease, and you could see on the floor all of the grime. You could see things that were there since probably the Kennedy administration that were kind of under the bar, and you could see. And I never saw it until the light came. Isn't that what happens to your life? Well, all of a sudden, the light of life of Christ comes into your life. And all of a sudden, you open up this Word. And all of a sudden, you look at it. And here's what it does. All of a sudden, it exposes your deeds. And it exposes... I mean, I mean I'm sorry to do this. It exposes you for who you are. In the deal Sunday, Paul says, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm the chief of the sinners. In this day and age, if Paul were to stand up in a group and say that, we'd say, you know what, we need to do two things. We need to get him into a support group, and we better get him some real serious help because he's got low self-esteem. What he's got, what he's got is a real accurate view of himself. See, men and women, as you get closer and closer and closer to God and who He is, not who you think He is, not how you'd like Him to be, but as He really is. When you get closer and closer and closer to Him, all of a sudden, it's not just that you see Him more clearly, you see yourself more clearly. You see what a wretched, awful, self-centered human you are. Now you go into the world and here's your message. You're a selfish, self-centered, awful generation. That's why they're going to persecute you. By the way, that's only the first part of the message. The second part of the message is, but there's hope. So here's what he's saying to you. Verse 14, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hidden. You don't take a lamp. Here you go. I need light uh, up here just to read. I don't take a light like this and then take it and, and, and put it down like this where it does. No, I put it up on a lampstand where it can be seen. Consequently, he says to you, verse 16, let your light shine before men in such a way as they see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Let your light be such. Here you go. Let your life be such that it's obvious, it's visible, it's clear who you are. They see it. They can't miss it. Remember telling the story, we had a guy that came in one day and he said, I am so excited. He said, We've got a, I'm working with a Christian. And I said, well, I, I, I didn't think they were hiring down at, at your place. And he said, well, they haven't hired anybody. And I said, well, what, is this a new guy? And he said, no. He said, I've, I've been working with him five, I don't remember the exact date, seven or eight years. He said, I just discovered he's a Christian. Yeah. I, how can that be possible? How, how could you sit next to somebody for seven or eight years and not maybe at Christmas or Easter, somewhere along the way, have them see that there's a distinctiveness and a difference about you? Let me make a, a, a couple of points here. Salt and light, for both of them to work, for salt to work, it must come in contact with whatever it is it's supposed to preserve. For light to work, it must come in contact with the dark. One of the 
gigantic mistakes that Christians make is to begin to withdraw from the world. That's what's wrong with monasteries and monks. Oh, we haven't, we, for years, uh, gave that emphasis like that was the ultimate. These are the ultimate spiritual people. They're the ultimate escape artist. If you can't be holy in a monastery, you've got major issues, my friend. And they couldn't. God didn't call us out of the world. He called us to be apart from the world, but to be in the world. You understand that. We're not, we're not of the world, but we're in the world. Here's the phrase I've been using. We're to have contact, but not contamination. We're to have contact with the world. You're going out, we're going to say amen in about five minutes, and boom, out the door you're going to go. You're going to sit out here, you're going to be frustrated by the time you can't get out of the parking lot. You're not even going to get to the light at Tatum and, and before you're frustrated, and your day's already, already ruined. You're going to walk into an office filled with pagans. You're going to have calls with people who are trying to cheat you and separate you from your cash. You're going to have people who yesterday told you how great they were, and today they're going to lie to you. Yet yesterday, guys that say, this is the best deal I can get you, you're going to tell them I'm going with somebody else, and today I'll be dipped if there isn't some sort of factory incentive that we can get you a better deal today. In other words, I lied to you yesterday, here's the deal today. How do you react in the midst of that world? You're salt and light in the midst of that world. You have to be contact in the midst of that world. This Christian life is a dirty business. And by that I mean it's not clean and tidy. It doesn't just fit into a box. You don't know who the real guys are always. You don't always know how it's going to shake out. But you live in such a way, see it? That they see your good works. They see that there's something different about you. When's the last time somebody asked you that? When's the last time somebody came up to you that you work with, or you, or you play golf with, or you're at the club with, or you work out with, or your neighbors? When's the last time they came up to you and said, there's something different and distinct about you? You're different than everybody else. When's the last time that happened? If that's not happening, I would suggest something could well be wrong in your life. They ought to see a difference. And now they glorify not you. They don't say, oh, Bob, you're a great guy. Oh, Barbara, you're a great gal. They glorify your Father who's in heaven. Let me read to you, and then we'll close. Let me read to you Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Uh, uh, let me read it to you from the New uh, American Standard. Let me read it to you from the message, Eugene Peterson. It's a passage that's familiar to you, but let's see if in light of today's discussion doesn't sound a little different. Here it is from the New American Standard. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Here's how Eugene Peterson paraphrases Romans 12, 1 and 2. This is, I really like this. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life. You're sleeping, you're eating, you're going to work, 
You're walking around and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. Here's verse 2. This is, I really like this. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what He wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you and develops well-formed maturity in you. That's the way you're supposed to live. Strange way to end the section. Blessed are those who are persecuted. And that should be you. Persecuted for His righteousness' sake. But you rejoice. Why? Your reward's great in heaven. You're in really good company. And now the charge. Don't you say, I'm so heavenly minded, I'm no earthly good. He said, that's not true. You, my friend, are the salt of the earth. And you, my friend, are the light of the world. And the end result of your salty, light life is that those around you begin to see a distinctiveness and begin to praise your Father who is in heaven. i got to close, but let me just make the point. If you're not salt and you're not light, we're running out of options on why that would be. Either A, you're a brand new Christian and you haven't had an opportunity, or B, you're just kind of ignorant of what you're supposed to do. That doesn't seem likely. C, you're disobedient. In other words, you're talking a good game with your Bible, but your life is just like everybody else. Or D, you're not a Christian at all. Remember what we said when we started in the Sermon on the Mount? We want you every week, at every moment, to examine your life. Is that you? Does this apply to you? We'll pick up right there next week, verse 17. Father, help us see this truth. God, thank us, thank you, that you saved us for a purpose and that you left us here to... Be your men and your women in this world. God, give us courage in the face of persecution, physical, insults, false accusations. Humbly, Lord, let us live life that brings honor and glory to you. God, let us be uh, your eyes, your ears, your hands, your feet. Let us, let us show your mercy to this world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. See you next week.